This sermon, Purposeful About Our Purpose, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, September 26, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church, Tucson. Haggai begins in the second year of Darius the king. In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this, his, while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withdrew the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet is the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Please be seated and pray with me. Well, Lord, we come before your throne and ask you to do that which you did to your Old Testament people. Stir us up. Lord, awaken our souls to the beauty and glory and majesty and sufficiency and infinite worth and unmatchable value to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to your pleasure and your glory. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would revive our souls this morning. Speak to us through the example of these Old Testament people. Lord, as your word is preached, 
despite this inadequate preacher. Lord, would you stir us up? We pray that the word would come in the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit so that we might live passionately to your pleasure and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Haggai begins with a familiar problem. In fact, that's our point this morning. We, we, we find ourselves entering uh, God, the world of God's people, and there is a problem, and it's a familiar one, as we will see. But before we begin to get into what was going on, uh, first, some background. Uh, you know, when you read your Bible and you get to a verse like verse 1, where there's There's dates, and there's months, and there's kings and priests. Uh, Those things matter. Don't just blow over them. Not only do those those details just remind us that the Bible is indeed a book of history, but even more importantly, it helps us understand where what we're about to encounter landed, where it happened in God's redemptive history. History. So a little bit of background. According to verse 1, the events of Haggai took place during the second reign of King Darius's reign. And that places our story here at about 520 BC. Scholars try and narrow it down using uh, the dates here, and they actually say, according to the the, the, the uh, calendar in antiquity, that we're talking about a three, three and a half month period from August 29th to December 18th. Now, this was a time of relative peace in the Persian Empire. But for God's people, it was a time of spiritual apathy. It was a time of spiritual indifference. The great expectations that they returned from their exile and back to their land have turned into great disappointments. In fact, just rewind 66 years with me to 586 BC. If you're not familiar with that date, that's a critical date in the Old Testament. Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple and he exiled God's people to Babylon. All of this, all of this a fulfillment of God's prophetic judgment. And then 40 years later, in 538, the Persian king Cyrus, a year after capturing Babylon, mercifully and graciously released Israel to return to their homeland. God moved on his heart and said, release my people, really for one purpose according to Ezra 1, 1 through 4, and that was to rebuild the temple. Once again, a prophetic fulfillment a fulfillment of God's prophetic restoration of his people. So as we approach God's people in Haggai, they have Babylon in their rearview mirrors. They have the favor of the Persian government in their back pocket. And they have renewed faith for the future in their hearts. God's people are heading home to take on a glorious building project. But in the face of stiff opposition, as the book of Ezra teaches us, 
the building project, the building of the temple, quickly fizzled. And now fast forward 18 years to Haggai 1. The temple remains in ruins. In fact, verse 2 tells the tale. Look what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. These people, meaning my people, notice he didn't call them my people here. He called them these people. They say the time hasn't come to rebuild my house. It's a shocking statement. If you understand the role of the temple in the life of God's people, it's a shocking statement. The temple was the center of spiritual life for Israel. It's where sacrifices were made, worship was experienced, and the presence of God with his people was manifested in every way. In every way, the temple represented God's divine favor and covenant relationship with his people. And this is why God's people had one purpose and priority in returning to their homeland, to rebuild the temple. In fact, did you notice, just look ahead with me to verse 8. Here's the purpose Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And then in verse 8, he says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. This was the reason that God moved on the Persian king's heart saying, go, the government's resources are yours. Go build your temple where you can worship your God. So it's a shocking statement that 18 years later, the Lord's house remains in ruins. Why? It was their purpose. Why? In so many ways, it was their life with God. Well, verse 2, they didn't feel it was the right time. Haggai doesn't say they didn't have the time. It just wasn't their priority at the time. In fact, they had other priorities. Notice verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, that is the Lord's house, remains in Ruins. It wasn't time to build the Lord's house because the Lord's people were busy giving their time to build their houses. It's a familiar problem, isn't it? It's a familiar problem. Whether it's the difficulties of life or new new and exciting opportunities in life, 
or simply the furious pace of life that we often find ourselves in, like God's people in Haggai's day, it's easy to be distracted from the reality that we sang about this morning, that God has rescued us and redeemed us and restored us back to himself for one purpose, his pleasure, his purpose of advancing his kingdom through his church and his glory. I thought about my grandkids this week. You know, every Monday night we have taco night, the grandkids are over, and all the toys are in the guest room. And so the first thing they do is they go into the guest room and they're bringing out toys. You can't even sometimes recognize that room if you go in there during taco night. Legos and dolls and everything else on the floor. Well, their parents are really good about saying, okay, we're getting ready to go, so go clean up. They're pretty good about doing that. And, and, and Nana and Papa appreciate that, right? <laughs> but inevitably, this is what we hear some point after they've been asked to go clean up. We see a mom or a dad walk into the room and we hear this. What are you doing? Well, I'm playing. Well, that's not why I told you to come in here. You're supposed to be picking up the toys, not taking more toys out. Well, I just wanted to play a little bit more with my. No, that's not why I sent you in here. You need. This is why you're here. <laughs> to pick up the toys. They get so distracted so easily. I would humbly submit to you, so it is with us. <laughs> so it is with us. We are so easily distracted. And like, and like God's people in the day of Haggai, we say it's just not the right time. Maybe not with our words, but with our actions. It's just not the right time for, it's just not, maybe some of these, maybe you can identify with some of these. It's just not the right time for prayer and God's word. I'm busy with school or a new career. It's just not the right time for life and fellowship with my church. You don't understand how hectic work is. <laughs> it's just not the right time to give to the gospel mission. I'm busy paying off debt. I'm on a program I heard about on the radio. I'm busy paying off debt and building a nest egg. It's just not the right time to give. It's just not the right time to serve my church. I'm busy raising my family. It's just not the right time to join a community group. Life is really demanding right now. It's just not the right time for God. Can you identify with that? I can. And I can identify with this as well. We, we, we tend to justify it by saying this. But it's just a season. <laughs> it's just a season. Now here's the danger of it's just a season. Seasons have a way of turning into lifestyles, don't they? Seasons have a way of turning into lifestyles. In fact, look back at verse 2. Notice verse 2. Did you see that phrase, the people say the time has not yet come? 
The verb say is in the present tense, meaning they kept on saying. It's a repeated action. So the point here is God's people kept on saying. It's just not time to build God's house. Year after year, 18 of them in fact, from 538 to 520, house after house, season after season, they were saying it just isn't time to build God's house. Seasons have a way of turning into lifestyles. Now listen, don't get me wrong. Can there be seasons that God has us in? Certainly. But beware, but beware of it's just a season because often our season is a sign that we have forgotten our purpose and confused our priorities. Often, it's just a season is a sign that we have forgotten our purpose and confused our priorities. And this is not about doing all the right things. It's about experiencing the glory and wonder of grace and grace of Jesus Christ through his spirit every day of our lives as we give ourselves to his priorities and purpose for us. Because one sign that our season has turned into a lifestyle is that we don't experience that. Instead, we experience futility. I want you to notice what he goes on to say. In verse five, he says, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In other words, think, think. The Christian life begins in the mind. It doesn't stay there because it's not merely an intellectual pursuit. It takes hold in our hearts, but it begins in our mind. Consider your ways. You have sown so much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You close yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. (laughs) They grew indifferent to God's purposes and glory And they felt it. They experienced the futility of self-worship. They experienced the futility of living for their priorities at the neglect of God's. Jeremiah 2.13 said it this way. They forsook the fountain. He's not talking about, this this is post, uh, or this is pre-exile. But he says, they forsook the fountain of living waters for cisterns that can hold no water. And as a result, they felt their futility, a familiar outcome of a familiar problem, isn't it? Listen, broken cisterns hold water for a moment. In that same way, the fulfillment of 
relationships and materialism and leisure and reputation in the marketplace, it's fleeting. Oh, it might satisfy for a moment, but it will leave you dry. It's like that Turkish delight in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Remember? That Turkish delight that the queen gave him, it was so good, it hooked him. And then it left him high and dry in prison. That's the, the same thing. I, I order my, when I order my priorities around me instead of God, I feel it. I build my house instead of his house. When I seek my kingdom first and his second, when I worship me instead of him, I feel it. And, and, and the odd thing is, well, not odd, irrational, is then I wonder why I'm thirsty. <laughs> because I'm, I'm toting around water in broken cisterns that hold no water. Forsaking the fountain of living waters. Now here's some good news. While our futility is the fruit of our self-worship, and that's what's happening in Haggai 1, ultimately, they had grown indifferent to the glory of God and were living for the glory of self. While our futility is the fruit of our self-worship, it is also a merciful act of God meant to bring us back to him, meant to show us our futility, so that we will come back to him, come back to him and his purposes. Notice, jump ahead to verse 9. Notice what it says. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and all their labors. Do do you see what's happening here? God's people are working hard to create a life of security and fulfillment apart from God. And what does God do? Verse 9 says, I blow it away. In fact, I'm going to send a drought to make sure you really experience the futility of neglecting my house. Man, does that seem harsh? (laughs) It's not. It's actually a tremendous act of love and mercy because it's meant to open our eyes and bring us back to that which satisfies, to turn us away from those broken cisterns and back to the fountain of living waters where I heard John Piper say in a sermon where we drink and drink and drink and be satisfied. appeal to your appetite here. Which would you choose? A plate of gristle 
or a New York strip cooked to perfection. It doesn't seem like a very difficult choice, does it? Maybe you like gristle, I don't know. But in my mind, it doesn't seem like a very difficult choice. And yet, it is. Every day, isn't it? Every day, it is. I, 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 I can remember years ago, I was a new Christian early on in my walk with the Lord. And it was a discouraging time um, in a lot of different ways. I remember sitting in the kitchen, at the kitchen table. And I feel like the Lord gave me a picture. I feel like the Spirit impressed this on my mind. Suddenly, I saw all the different aspects of my life laid out on the table, covered the entire table. There was marriage and kids and work and leisure. And and I sold real estate then. And my goal, I'm going to retire when I'm 45. So I was all about working and making money and all of these different things. And as I'm looking at them and observing them and considering them, suddenly a hand appeared and just cleared everything off that table. Startled me. And I remember just believing that the Spirit said to me, not audibly, (laughs) I'm in the center. And allow me to put into your life in the order that I want. And this hand began to put my life back onto the table. But it looked totally different. Christ was at the center. His church was at the center. That's what's happening here in a sense. The Lord is using Haggai to clear their table and say, start building my house. See, the truth is, God wants us to encounter him. God wants you to experience his power, his true joy and satisfaction that only comes when you are consumed with him. So if what you need for that is to have God blow away the things that are in your life, he will. (laughs) He will. Don't be surprised. He will because he loves you that much. He is that jealous for you to experience him for all that you can. And he is that jealous for his glory alone in your life and in the church. It's a familiar problem that we see in Haggai's day. So what do we do? Well, the second point is a merciful remedy. In this story, we see a merciful remedy to a familiar problem. I believe that there can be four distinct groups of people right now in how you are responding to this message at this point. First, there's the not me group. Pastor, I'm fine. I'm pretty committed. You know I'm here every Sunday. I serve, I give, I'm all in. This really doesn't apply to me. It's the not me group. Then there's a second group. It's the I'm offended group. (laughs) How dare my pastor give me a commitment speech? 
How dare my pastor? Doesn't he know that I'm right there every Sunday? Doesn't he know everything that I do for the Lord? How dare he? The I'm offended group. By the way, Christians should be the least offended people on this planet when we truly consider the gospel. And then third, there's the get it done group, right? Okay, well, just tell me what to do. I'm in. I'm ready to re-up. I love what Ian Duguid says about, about this group. He says, it's, it's not hard to preach a guilt-inducing sermon from Haggai 1. No, no, it's not. Simply tell people to examine their ways, repent of their sins, get with God's program for their lives, and God will bless them for it. The problem with such an approach is that our focus is not on Christ, but simply a more effective materialism. We treat seeking God as a means to build in our own kingdom, whether the form of that kingdom for us is a bigger local church and a better ministry or personal prosperity and a fulfilling relationship. It's not get it done. If you're in that group, Christ has to be at the center. And as we will see in a moment, you can't get it done, at least not on your own. But whatever group you're identifying with right now, we're all in a fourth group. And that's I can't do this on my own group. I want you to look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the high priest, the high priest and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. That's a good report, isn't it? That's a good report. Haggai gives us a good report. The Lord spoke through him, and now the people are building the house of the Lord. God spoke, build my house. His people heard him. They feared him, Haggai says. They took, in other words, they took his words seriously. They trusted in his promise. He said, I will be with you. They took him at his word and trusted his promise. And they obeyed him, building his house, seeking his kingdom first, passionately pursuing his priorities. You know what this is? This is revival. (laughs) That's what this is. This is revival with God's people. Now listen, that's the human perspective. That's what we see happening. God's people heard, trusted, and obeyed. But Haggai doesn't leave us there. Haggai wants to make sure that we have another perspective, the ultimate perspective on what's going down here in Haggai 1, a divine perspective on what's happening. Look at verse 14. Notice what he says. And the Lord stirred them up. 
the Lord stirred them up. That word stirred, it means to be awakened. God gave them a wake-up call. And what I want us to see here, this is so critical to the entire sermon, what I want us to see is that this was more than simply change of outward behavior. This is not religious pragmatism. Haggai has no interest in that. Notice what it says. It says God stirred them up. Where? In their spirit. There was an inward work that happened with God's people. God changed their hearts. He gave them fresh zeal for his house. He gave them a fresh desire for his glory in their lives. He gave them a fresh passion for his priorities. He gave them fresh joy to be called and to live as his People, this is not just change behavior. This is not just people rolling up their sleeves and saying, well, let's get to building that house so we can get back to our houses. No, God stirred them up. The Holy Spirit moved on them and worked in them and gave them a whole new perspective. Changed their desires. Made what at one time for 18 years, we'll get to it, just not now, to be, no, this is our purpose. <laughs> this is what we're called to. What else would we want to give ourselves to? They built with joy. They, 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 they gave themselves. They came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts. And notice what it says, their God. <laughs> This just wasn't about a house. This just wasn't about a temple. This just wasn't about, we got to get this done. This was about serving their God. And it's the same today. In fact, what we see here is what, what really characterizes a Christian's life. A genuine believer listens to the Lord. Trust the Lord, obeys the Lord. Oh, not perfectly. We all stumble. But the responsibility and mark, and most importantly, privilege of a genuine Christian is hearing and doing God's word. We learned that in James 1, didn't we? It's always the right time for obedience to God, it's always the right time to throw yourself into God's purposes for your life. But here's what I want to see. As we throw ourselves in, our obedience is never the fruit of working ourselves up. (laughs) It's always the fruit of the Holy Spirit's enabling and empowering work in us. Those That precious statement... In verse 14, and he stirred them up in their spirits. It's the key to everything that we see in this book. It was the Lord's doing. 
These were his people, but they had become dry and apathetic. They, had, they were distracted by the needs and the wants of the world. And God awakened their souls. This is, this is why we like to say God always gets the game ball. <laughs> I listen to the Lord. I trust his promises. And I obey his word. And I'm called to do that. And scripture nowhere says that I can sit on the couch and somehow supernaturally I'll just be moved to go do things. No, that's my calling. (laughs) But when I do, when I lay my hands to building the house of the Lord, I can take no credit. Because I look back and I go, that was the Spirit's work and ministry in my heart. God always gets the game ball. Remember that. None of us get a game ball in this room. No matter how passionately you're pursuing God and his priorities for you, the glory always belongs to God because the power for it comes from God. His spirit. Listen, we all, we all need a wake-up call at times, don't we? <laughs> Some here may need the ultimate wake-up call. You need to hear the voice of the Lord, the voice of Jesus that says in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus. You don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. That is the voice of the Lord that you need to hear, to recognize that whatever you're building your life on right now, it is sinking sand. Whatever you're searching for, Jesus is better. Whatever you're longing for, Jesus will satisfy alone. Whatever you're running from, Jesus paid the price for on the cross fully. He bore the wrath of God meant for you on account of your sins. So if you're running from something, give it to Jesus. Come before his throne and cry out for mercy. Lord, I am am a great sinner in need of a great Savior, and you are it. Scripture says believe. Believe that you are a sinner, and Jesus Christ is a sufficient Savior. And whatever you're doing after the service, come see me, so I can tell you more about this Jesus. For the believer, we drift, we wander. We say it's just a season as the things of this world continue to get bigger and bigger and grander to us. They become more precious and more valuable than giving ourselves to the pleasure and the glory of the Lord. And if that's you this morning and at certain times and in some ways, it's all of us. This morning, 
We need to hear the voice of Jesus that says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You will not go without what God in his infinite wisdom and purpose for you has ordained you should have. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom in your relationships, in your dating relationships, in your marriage. Seek first his kingdom in the marketplace, in the way that you do business, with integrity and honesty and a heart of servant. Seek first his kingdom and how you spend money. We can go on and seek first his kingdom in those difficult friendships. Seek first his kingdom with that unbelieving neighbor. Seek first his kingdom in those conflicts. Where is God calling you to forsake your kingdom and seek first his kingdom? Where are you building your paneled houses at the neglect of his house. Listen, the claim of this text on our lives begins in, with those phrases, consider your ways. He says it, I think, three times, for sure in verse five and seven. What do you need to consider? Where do you need a wake-up call? Where do you need a renewed passion and fresh vision for Christ and his precious church. The claim here is to consider your ways and respond to the spirits stirring in your heart this morning. Respond. Listen to what the spirit is saying to you. Repent to God. Trust him. Obey him and then give him glory. Give him glory for his spirit's reviving work in your heart through your passionate pursuit of his priorities for you. Don't leave here. Don't don't walk out of here as if it's just another Sunday. Nice talk, Pastor. Oh, it's good catching up with you, John. Oh, yeah, the game's in 10 minutes. The Lord has gathered this group of people here for a reason. (laughs) He has intentions for us. His spirit is here. And so what work does he want to do in you? And as you... Pay attention. Consider your ways. I want to leave you with this. Look back to verse 8. It says, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be 
glorified. You know, today, the house of the Lord is no longer about wood and stone and buildings. It's about Jesus, the true temple. It's about Jesus, the one who bore the cost of building the church on the cross. It's about Jesus, the one who did the work that makes sinners like you and I fit to live in the household of God as his beloved children. It's about Jesus who sought the kingdom of God perfectly because we don't. It's about Jesus who demonstrated the zeal for his father's house that we lack every day of our lives, not just with a whip and by turning over tables, but by giving himself up to death on a cross for sins that you committed and I committed, not him. That seal for God's church. From the cross to the throne, Jesus gave us And through the Spirit, he continues to give us all we need to passionately pursue God's priorities with joy and fervor and ultimate satisfaction. Listen to what our friend Ian Duguid says. He says, the result of seeking first God's kingdom will not necessarily be earthly prosperity or even large, successful churches. Jesus' earthly ministry was characterized by neither of those things, but God does promise his repentant people his presence with us now and the fulfillment of his own kingdom goals in the longer term. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What else do we need or desire? In place of our preoccupation with food does not fill, that does not fill, with drink that does not satisfy, and with clothing that cannot warm our souls, God promises us the bread of life, a fountain of living water, and clothing to cover our spiritual nakedness. In Christ, what else do we need? could be more desirable and satisfying. What a great privilege, church, and purpose that we have as the church, and all of it in Christ by the Spirit, for the pleasure and to the praise of God's glory through his church.